All right, so today um, we're, we're re I'm really happy that Dr. Alonso has, has stepped in for us. Um, Dr. Stepanova came down um, with a bad case of the flu, not coronavirus, as she let us know. Um, and so she was unable to, to join us today. Um, and Dr. Alonso um, graciously um, stepped in to provide a very, another interesting talk that um, I'll let you introduce yourself, so I don't want to box your, your bio. Um, but please welcome uh, Dr. So, yeah, so I'm uh, Anna's husband, so uh, she got sick, so hopefully I'm okay so far. So, and then she asked me, like, if uh, she really didn't want to cancel, so it's like, oh, maybe you can suggest that I prepare this, or let's see how it goes. So I'm Jose Alonso, I'm a professor in the Department of uh, Plant and Microbial Biology. So actually I share the lab with Anna. So, but what I'm gonna talk to you today is something different. I think she will come sometime in the future to talk about uh, her synthetic biology uh, project. So, but this is something that we've been working in the lab for a few years and it's this, uh, is this a pointer or no pointer? Okay, so uh, it's this technology that is called recombinating. So I'm, I'm gonna tell you how it works and why, how it works and then how, why, we, uh, why we care about this and some of the applications that uh, we are trying to implement. So we are molecular biology, a uh, plant molecular biology lab. So, and so I'm gonna tell you a little bit just of what the types of things that we are interested in and then I'll zoom in into the recombinating that is uh, what I'm gonna tell you today. So all the, uh, we have several projects in the lab, but they all, are under the umbrella of this big question that we want to, that we've been uh, asking for a long time, that is how plants are able to integrate signals. So their environment and, so they are exposed to these environmental changes and then they have to sense this information and then change their own developmental program accordingly to produce specific responses. And then uh, we are interested, of course, this is a very broad question and then we, we want to go to the molecular uh, mechanisms behind this, behind this integration. And trying to address this question, so I, I want to say that uh, please feel free to interrupt me and ask questions as we go, it's probably better so I don't lose anybody in the way. So it's gonna be a little bit of technical stuff, or maybe a lot of technical stuff, but hopefully not too much. So trying to address this general question, we have, uh, this, this has taken us to different uh, projects. So we studying interaction between plant hormones. These are two plant hormones that are in oxygen. We are also studying the biosynthesis of hormone oxygen. And then we are also starting, or we've been working on regulation of translation. And I will tell you a little bit about that in a, during the talk. But so these are the, 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 the biological questions that we are trying to address. Usually what we do is we, to address these questions, we uh, bring or uh, borrow or implement technologies that are either already there and then maybe they have not been applied to plants or sometimes we have to modify them to, to be able to use them in plants. And one of those is recombinating that's, uh, that I'm gonna tell you today. And maybe a little bit about ribosome footprinting. So this is uh, what we're focusing today, but in general, the, thing, the way that we uh, see uh, our work is we are interested in these uh, basic biological processes and then we usually have to, to be able to address those questions or to get in, inside of this uh, of these biological processes, then we need to get some technolo technologies. And as I said before, sometimes these technologies need to be adapted to, to be, be able to use it in plants. There's like recombinating, we took it from uh, mouse genetics and then we implemented it in plants. And then the whole idea is that then we can learn more and one thing that we, I think we are pretty good about this and bringing technologies. Well, we are not so good yet is to try to get this and then translate it to solve practical problems. And I'll give you an example of, of one of the projects that we are trying to do something in that direction, but again, it's probably not our strength, but. Uh, so uh, this is more or less the outline of the talk. So I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna talk about recombinating. You probably don't know anything about recombinating. So I'll tell you what it is, how it works, and then I will give you some examples of what can be used for. So we will see that we can use this to monitor 
the expression of a gene to see whether a gene is turned on and off, and how that is better than other approaches that can be used for the same thing. So we can uh, make point mutations, we can make insertions, basically anything, any type of modification in DNA that can be done using homologous recombination, we can do it with recombinating. But as you will see, there's a big difference of, the, the big difference of other approaches is that we do this all in E. coli. So then we can also use it for altering expression patterns and of, of a gene of interest. I'll give you an example for that. Then we can also use it, I thought that may be interesting for some people, here is to stack genes. So you have to make really large constructs. The big advantage of recombinating is that we don't care if it's like 10 kbs or 100 kbs. We can do exactly the same. So we can actually handle very easily very large constructs. We can, in theory, we have actually not done that, but we have the, the technology to do it to make like, really like maybe 10, 20 uh, gene construct. So then uh, what is our contribution to, this, uh, to the recombinating? So what we have been trying to do is to use this, uh, the basic tools that were already available and try to, to make them easier, adapted to plants, and then make them easier for people in the plant biology community to use them. So we have developed an, a variety of tools that we make uh, freely available. They are all in the stock center. So then anybody, and the protocols are related to that, uh, so then anybody in the field hopefully can use it, can see how beautiful it works, and then uh, start using it. And then I will give you like our attempt to translate this, uh, our understanding of biology and our technologies into a, uh, an application that it would be to manipulate fruit ripening, in, the case, in this case, uh, tomato fruit ripening. Okay, but the first question is, why the combination? Why are we trying to do with this technique? So we are all familiar with CRISPR, so and how easy it is now to uh, make mutations in a gene in more in a lot of species. Right? Not in everywhere, not in every species, but like in model systems, like in Arabidopsis, that is the plant that we work. It's, it's very very easy to make now mutations in a gene. But those are usually you just break the DNA and then the repair machinery of the cell will fix it and make some mistakes. And then that's what you're looking for, a mutation that will uh, hopefully uh, make this gene inactive. So also with, with CRISPR, we can make more precise editing in the genome. But that is still challenging, right? So one thing that you may want to do is in the context of a chromosome, you may want to add a piece of DNA, in this case, like a fluorescent protein. So we can add this piece of fluorescent, this, the DNA encoding for this uh, fluorescent protein into a gene so we can actually monitor the activity of this gene, right? So you can do this by CRISPR, right? So you can break the DNA, give a donor DNA, and then look for the events of this homologous recombination that is enhanced by breaking the DNA. But it still is not very efficient in most species. Of course, if you work with GIST, this is routine, but in most other uh, organisms, it's not. And then also other type of precise uh, editing of the genome. So just point mutations, any type of of modification. We can do them with, with CRISPR, but this is still challenging. So that is where recombinating comes in. So it's, it's not as good as CRISPR in the sense that we are not doing this in the genome of the organism, but we think it's the next best thing, right? So what the whole, the, the idea is, we can take a large piece of DNA, like 100 KBs from Arabidopsis, that contains the gene of our interest. And hopefully, and that's the key thing of this, it will contain also all regulatory sequences that are required for this gene to function properly. Okay, and then we take all this Arabic, this uh, this blue thing will be the Arabidopsis DNA. Then we can put it in a in a bacterial artificial chromosome backbone, so we can now put it into uh, into E. coli. And then we can make any type of uh, manipulation we want by homologous recombination very easily, and that's how I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you how we do that. And then we can put this DNA. Uh, if we use the right vectors, we can put this into agrobacterium and then we can put it back into the plant. So the key difference, and this is very important, we are not manipulating the DNA of the plant per se. Okay? We are manipulating a piece of DNA that we took from the plant, we manipulate it, and then we put it back as an extra copy into the plant. Okay? So that is a key difference. That's why it's not as good as, as, as CRISPR, in which you will actually make the modification in the genome itself. So this is just like what I think is the next best thing, but not as good. So the first thing is how is uh, what is recombinating, how it works. 
So recombinier is an in vivo because it's done in E. coli homologo recombination system that is used for genome editing. Uh, and it's based on three bacterial uh, phage proteins. And I'll, I'll, I'll show you in a minute that come from lambda, lambda phage. So the key features of this system uh, that makes them quite useful and why a lot of people have adopted, not so much in the plant community, but in other communities, like in, in Drosophila and C. elegans, uh, in mouse genetics is where originally was developed, so that's routinely used. So these are the key features. So one is that the regions of homology that we need, so we have a piece of DNA that we want to target to a specific location in the, in, in the target DNA, the regions of homology are very small, only 40 nucleotides. That is very different of most uh, homologo recombination systems that require a much larger sequence of, uh, of homology. So that makes it very convenient because we can very easily generate these regions that are going to target the DNA by just synthesizing them, like oligos, right? So the other important feature is doesn't, the process doesn't require breaking the DNA. So this is done, the recombination, the, 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 the recombination is done during the replication of the, of the DNA. So in, in contrast to CRISPR, that you break the DNA and then you induce homologous recombination, here the system doesn't require uh, breaking the DNA. And the key thing is that it's very efficient. So the, the, you can actually, I'll show you exactly how we do it. So uh, usually we will just select, select, selection, right? So, but it's so efficient that in some cases people have used it with no selection. In fact, people have used this to edit uh, E. coli genome or bacterial genomes introduce hundreds of point mutations with no selection. Right? So then you can actually uh, do this due to the high efficiency of the, of the system. So this is all the ingredients that you need. So you have your target DNA. So this is the DNA that is going to be in E. coli, in a special strain of E. coli that is recombinating competent. So and this is the, gene, the, the, the DNA that you want to modify. So then you have the donor DNA, that is the one up there, in which we are going to add, so we have already added these uh, blue sequences that are the 40 nucleotides of homology to the target sequence. And those, is, those sequences are the ones that are going to target that piece of DNA wherever we want in this target DNA, right? And then, so uh, then we have, again, like the target DNA is in E. coli. Usually this will be a plasmid or it could be the, the genome of E. coli itself then the donor is going to be just a linear piece of DNA that we are going to electroporate into the cell with those, uh, with those blue sequences, with those sequences of homology to the target sequence. And then in the strain that we use, we can induce these three proteins. Exo, that is an exonuclease that is going to chew from the five prime to the three prime, the linear DNA, and it's going to create these three prime protrudinates. Then beta, that is the recombinase, is going to bind to this single-stranded DNA, and it's going to scan during the replication. It's going to scan the, the DNA looking for the homology to be sequenced, and when it finds, it will actually uh, trigger the recombination event. And then there's one more protein that is not here, that is gamma. So that is actually not required for this process, but it's required for preventing the degradation of the linear DNA in the E. coli, because E. coli has a mechanism to degrade linear DNA. So that is... Uh, not shown in here. So these are the, the, the ingredients that we require for, uh, for doing this, for doing recombinating. Okay. So uh, I'm going to show you just some examples of the type of things that you can do with recombinating. So Again, we have our, this is our target DNA, so this will be not, this is just a gene that has all regulatory sequences. This could be our promoter, our exons, uh, and then what I'm not showing here will be another probably 50 kbs of DNA upstream and downstream of this sequence. So we have everything probably this gene needs to, uh, to uh, all, all the regulatory sequences. And then what we want to do in this example is we want to introduce a GFP uh, marker, so then we can visualize with the, where this gene is expressed. Right? So then we just take a GFP sequence, and then with just two primers, we can amplify this, and part of this primer, 40 nucleotides, 
that we have designed. So then this product, PCR product, will have the GFP sequence and then just polynucleotides upstream and polynucleotides downstream that are homologous to whatever region, in this case, this sequence here, where we want to insert our DNA. Yes. Yes. A few questions. Yeah. One, one of the advantages of this is the size of the piece that you can put in. How large is the size of the piece? So we, saw, we the biggest we have used is 120 kVs. And that's how many genes? Well, it depends on the Arabic. Yeah, that's that's quite a few. <laughs> so yeah. probably like 20 genes? Yeah, 20 genes. So you can move 20 genes from a plant into the E. coli. Yeah. Well, yes, and then we can move it back to the yeah, plant. Yeah. So, so the other question was, when you move it into the E. coli, the way bacteria work compared to plants working in terms of promoters and other things, do you actually get the machinery from, from the E. coli being able to make everything just fine? No. So oh. actually, the, in E. coli, we're only going to do the manipulation. We are not going to do... Uh, Anything else? But you can have expression from the promoter, right? No, oh. this is a plant promoter, ah. right? So this 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 is going to be just a piece of DNA that is just inert, kind of in, in E. coli. Then when we make the modifications, we will have to bring them back to the plant, yeah. and then then there hopefully we will do everything that it needs to do. Any other questions? So. And then, so just, it's a simple PCR, right? So we have, we actually have collections of, of back libraries. So if you have any genome project, uh, people ha will have generated back libraries for your genome of interest, like tomato or strawberries, whatever. And then we can actually select the back, the bacterial artificial chromosome that contains the gene of interest. And then we can just add, introduce it into this strain of E. coli, Simple PCR, and we, we introduce the sequences that we want to target this to the gene of interest. And, and then, as I will show you a, later, there is a selection step, but this is just to give you an idea. It's a little bit more complicated than just electroporating, but not much. So this is just one example, but as you can see, all we're doing is homologous recombination. So anything, any type of modification that you can do by homologous recombination, you can do it with this system. So this will be another example. So we have a gene. We just want to make one nucleotide change. So we can just, now, but then we will just synthesize a piece of DNA that will have the mutation that we want, and then a little bit of sequences flanking that mutation, and then we electroporate this DNA in, in the E. coli that contains the target DNA, the target gene, and then select for the recombination of it. So we can make point mutation. We can introduce a GFP. We can make deletions. This is actually very, very efficient. If you want to delete, that's the easiest thing to do here. So we can delete 100 kbs, no problem. So, and again, all you need to do is synthesize a small fragment of DNA. I'll show you, it's a little bit more than that, but the basic idea is you have the sequences that are flanking whatever you want to delete and then just replace that for the sequence. Another one thing that we have done is like, you have a gene uh, of your interest, and then you want to express it with the expression pattern of a different gene. So what we can do is take a G, the, 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 the gene one, that is the one that has the regulatory sequences that we want, and then we, this is our, now our target sequence. So we, we can replace the coding sequences of that gene with the coding sequences of our gene of interest. So now we have our gene of interest, interest driven by the regulatory sequences of gene one. So that's something that we have done, for example, to study oxybiosynthesis, and we can exchange regulatory sequences and ask specific questions. So this is another uh, approach that I, I we have not done, but in theory is, uh, is very feasible to do. So it's to stack many genes in one construct of DNA. Again, the whole idea is because this, is, uh, this te te technology allows you to manipulate, to manipulate large fragments of DNA in a very easy way. So you can make a construct, so the way you can, uh, this actually shows you a little bit more the reality of how you do it. You first introduce a selectable marker into the, this will be a back clone or a, or, or a small fragment of DNA that which you're gonna build in and gonna make like a construct of 20, 20 genes in this case. So you introduce the, uh, the, this selectable contra selectable marker and then you replace it with, uh, with the gene that you want and then you can repeat this process as many times as you want, and then you add 
as many genes as you can hold in a bag that is 140 kbs or so. So that in a Lavidopsis will be uh, like 20, 30, 40 genes. Now, one advantage of this is that once you have made your construct of 20 genes, now you realize that you don't like gene 4, you want to use a different variant of G4, or you want to use something else, or you want to make a point mutation in that gene. You don't have to redo the whole thing. Again, it's homologous recombination. So what you can do is you get your final construct that has all 20 genes of your pathway, and then you can just replace the gene that you want again by homologous recombination. So now this is like just the technology, how it works. Uh, I don't know if it's clear enough. Uh, again, all done in bacteria. So we just using bacteria as the tool. So basically, the bacteria is our our hands to to, to break DNA and, and make precise manipulation. And then we take this DNA from one species, we put it in bacteria, we manipulate it, and we bring it back to the to, to the species that we want, if that's possible. Like, so now this is what we have been working on. So this is how you actually the the, the, the classical recombinating will require all these steps. So. The first thing you do is you have, your, again, your gene of interest in a pack, in a bacterial artificial chromosome that you introduce in your recombinating strain. And then you have to introduce, the, originally, this GALK. So GALK is a gene that in E. coli, you can use it as a positive and negative selection. So you can select the four, and then you can select it against. So then you will insert this wherever you want to, later on, introduce your, in this case, GFP, or a, G, or a green fluorescent protein. So you insert it, and then you select four, and then you replace it then with the GFP, uh, again, selecting against. So the reason why we don't like this, so this is, you, are, you need to grow E. coli in minimum media because this uh, takes advantage of the GALK that allows the E. coli to grow in minimum medium with galactose as the only source of carbon. So that means that E. coli takes like five days to grow. And then, you need to replace it, replace the GALK by your gene of interest, by your uh, sequence of interest, like in this case GFP, by again selecting against the GALK, and in this case you have to use a very expensive analog of, of, of galactose, uh, deoxygalactose, and again it grows very slowly. So that is probably one of the reasons why people don't like using this, because it takes a lot of time and you have to prepare special media. It's not just growing E. coli. It's just growing, making special media and, and all that. So what we did is to try to remove all that. So we want to use E. coli just like we regularly use E. coli in the lab. Rich media, antibiotic selection, right? So what we did is to modify the system. So now instead of uh, introducing a positive selectable marker and then replace it, we make a cassette that has just a positive selectable marker that is ampicillin resistance. So everybody that works with E. coli, it's very easy to do this type of selection, right? And it's very fast. Overnight, you get, you get uh, the selection. And now, we add to this a little bit, a, a few more things. So we have our selectable marker, then we have the gene, the sequence that we want to introduce, and then we flank this selectable marker with sequences that, uh, that are recognized by a recombinase, so we can actually remove them after uh, we don't want them anymore. And that's extremely efficient, so there is no requirement, no, no need for selection. So what we do now, instead of just using the, all these steps that I showed you before, we just PCR amplify this cassette, adding the sequences that we want, so that, it, they, that are gonna target this sequence to our gene of interest, and then uh, PCR amplify, select for ampicillin resistance, then remove the ampicillin by recombination, and then you have your end product. So we have made many of these cassettes. So uh, all deposited in the stock center, so anybody can use it for at least the ones that we have made. Of course, uh, if you want to do uh, one of these experiments, I'm sure you're not, we are not gonna have the right, the tag that you want, because that's always the case, right? So what we made is another cassette that makes it very easy to make your own cassettes by recombination. So all you need to do is to amplify whichever sequence you want to use as a tag by PCR and then do these recombination steps and then you will end up with a cassette that now you can use over and over for, uh, for the tagging. So 
one key uh, aspect of, the of, this, of, of doing this type of experiment is that you can make any type of modifications, right? So in this case, like, what if you want to make a point mutation? Do I need to make a cassette that has the point mutation? So we made this only cassette that contains both a positive and negative selection, so you can actually make any mutation that you want, but these are antibiotic resistant selections. So again, it's all in rich media, all uh, very uh, overnight type of experiment. So if you want to take a gene and then introduce a point mutation, so what you can do is first introduce the positive negative selectable marker into your gene of interest, and then synthesize the gene, the piece of DNA that has the mutation that you want, and then replace that, uh, the, the cassette that you introduced first, with a mutated sequence. So again, very efficient, very easy to do. Uh, and I'm not, this looks very complicated, and it's very complicated, but what this allows, we made other cassettes. So if you work with plants, again, this is all tools that are developed for plants. So if you work with plants and you want to do this type of a strategy in which you're going to modify a gene in E. coli and then put it back into the plant, so then you need to use a binary <coughs> vector that is going to allow you to put it into agrobacterium that then is going to introduce it into the plant. So now that requires that either you have libraries of, of made in these special vectors that have been sequenced for your geno genome of interest, and that is not the case. We have that in Arabidopsis, but I think it's the only case I know. But what is likely that you have is back libraries, that these are not binary vectors. They cannot grow in agrobacterium, but you have still the sequences of your genome of interest. So what this, all this allows you to do is to take, make the modifications in the back, and then take, we have done up to 75 kVs, take 75 kVs of DNA from a back and move it to a binary vector in E. coli. No, you don't have to do any pipetting or anything. And then take this, this uh, final product, put it into agrobacterium, and now it's in a binary vector, so you can transform your plants. So it's so easy that you can do not one at a time, but so we can do 96 at a time. So you can do, all you have to do is PCR amplification and electroporation. So it's very easy. So we have done hundreds of genes. Uh, this is just an example of, uh, these are all the oxymiosynthetic genes in Arabidopsis. So we tag them all, so then we can actually see where this hormone is produced in the plant. And then we have also developed tools that allow you to facilitate for you to, to start using the system. So these are all the steps you need to do. So the recombinant strain is from NCI, so you can order it free of charge. And then all the cassettes, everything that I show you is in the Arabidopsis stock center. And then uh, we developed uh, bioinformatic tools that will help you to design your oligos uh, for your targeting. And this is just an app that does also that they help you to identify which, which uh, back or tag clone you need to order from the stock center and which oligos you need to order. So do I have more time? I can give you like... Yeah, yeah. Sure. So you put it back in and you have a marker so you can see where it's being expressed in the fruit how, or wherever it is. How do you know that it's doing it the same as the original? You have the original sequence there too, right? So can you compare how they both do it? And do, how big a sequence do you have to put back in so that it maintains that? Right, so I cannot be absolutely sure that it, it does exactly the same that in the, in, the, in the native gene, right? We think it's as good as we can get, so because we have a lot of sequences around it. So what we know in the cases that we have studied, so the classical, the gold standard is you have a mutant in the gene of your interest, you put a piece of DNA for that gene, and if it rescues the phenotype, so you think that this is expressed in the right place, in the right levels. So, but that, we have examples in which that is true, but then the expression pattern will be not right. So you can still complement some of the phenotypes, but maybe you go in more details, it will be not completely. Uh, in those cases in which that classical approach doesn't work, this approach works. So we can see that it rescued completely the phenotype, well, the other one kind of, of rescued. So then, I mean, other people, we have been collaborating with a lot of people uh, making these constructs. So classical constructs that have been used for many, many years, people have made uh, mathematical models to understand how this gene will work. Like this, in the, this is in the context of oxygen transport. 
So, and then based on the patterns of expressions that they got from those classical constructs, the model was not working perfectly. So then they use this technology and then now they see that the, the model behaves much better. When you introduce the right pattern of expression, that, or, or the pattern of expression that you gain from this information. And I don't know if there was some other. No, that's it. Okay. <laughs> So uh, the example I'm going to give you, I need to introduce you a little bit of another project that we have in the lab that is looking at translational regulation. So if you think about any trade that is triggered by a stimulus, so in this case, uh, we're going to be looking at ethylene because this is one of the hormones that we work, and then the output is going to be like ripening. So what you have is like, in general, you have uh, something in the cell has to sense the presence of the, of, the, of the signal, in this case the hormone. So you're going to have a receptor, you have perception, and then it's going to be a signal transduction that is going to be a bunch of uh, communication between molecules. And then usually at the end of that process, what you have is activation and repression of genes. And those changes, those changes are going to result in ripening or whatever is what this signal is triggering. So, and that's how we usually think about but uh, in theory, you can actually also uh, regulate not only transcription, but you can, this pathway can also regulate other aspects of gene expression. In, in, and translation has been one of the things that people have thought for a long time that should be regulated, but we didn't have the tools actually to, uh, to, to, to study uh, translational regulation at the whole genome level, to identify genes that are regulated at the translational level in response, for example, to ethylene. So, I'm not going to tell you why we did this, but we had some mutants that we thought they would be involved in translation in response to ethylene. So we did is implement a technology that was developed in GIST that allows you to monitor translation rates. Okay, and if you are interested, I can tell you later how this works. Uh, but it's basically an, an RNA-seq-based um, technology. Okay, but it gives you not only information about how much transcript you have but also how many ribosomes you have in each transcript. So having these two pieces of information, you can see, you can uh, learn how much protein is being made per each transcript. So you can do that in response to, in our case, ethylene. And then what we found is that ethylene regulates the translation of specific genes. In fact, only, like, in the first experiments, we only identified about 140 genes that were regulated at the translational level by ethylene. So this is how that looks. So basically, this is the density of reads, of RNA-seq reads. These are RNA-seq, so this is, this gene basically is induced by the hormone, that's air ethylene. And then this is looking at the footprints, at the ribosomal positions in the, in the gene. And you can see that you have less in response to ethylene. So this gene, when you treat the ethylene, the transcript levels go up, but the amount of ribosomes per transcript goes down. So basically, you are increasing the levels of transcription, but you are making less protein in response to ethylene. And then we found, as I said, a number of, of genes that behave like that. So what is interesting for this talk today is that we were able to find why only those genes are responding to ethylene. So the same that in a, in a transcriptional regulation, you, take, you can identify uh, the promoter elements that are required or responsible for the induction of the transcription of this gene in response to ethylene, for example. So in this case, we, we found that the three prime UTR of these genes is what is required for this regulation. So basically what I'm showing here is that we can take any gene, in this case GFP, we attach to this GFP construct the three prime, the sequences corresponding to the three prime untranslated regions of, of this gene, ABF2, and then we put it into the plant so this is our control in response to ethylene, there is no change. Now in response to ethylene, we are repressing translation of that transcript. Okay? So what, now what we have is a, a way to manipulate gene expression, not at the transcriptional level, but at the, at the translational level, in response to this hormone. So how are we trying to utilize this together with the recombinating? <clears throat> so this is work from uh, some other group in which they show that uh, this is uh, looking at ripening, in fact, softening of tomato. So you can knock out a gene in tomato, this uh, pectate lyase, and then this is, the, this is the wild type after many, many days. <coughs> you can see you will notice this. 
And these are the same aged tomatoes from this mutant in which they remove that gene that is involved in cell wall and, uh, modification. So you can see that they are much, uh, much harder. So in fact, they are too high. So probably you, mm, like when they are ripe, they are still not, the texture is not right. So probably it's not soft, but it's not what you probably like. So in here, you just, we just show, they just show that in fact they are much harder than uh, the, the, this, this knockout uh, lines are much harder. So, we also know that during ripening, there is this process of ethylene production. It actually, there is a peak of ethylene production at the time that the, the fruits start changing color, and then it goes down when the fruits are ripe. So we want to use that to manipulate the expression of the, of the pectate lyase, so the enzyme, that, the, enzyme, the gene that I showed you before. So the idea will be, instead of inducing the expression of this gene at this point, we want to repress it. And I show you how to do that now by the three prime UTR. And then when the ethylene goes away, allow it to be translated. So then you will get a fruit that later on is going to be soft and eatable, but it will take longer to get to that point. So that is, that's the idea. So what we did is, again, doing recombinating. This is my last slide. Using recombinating, we took the tomato, uh, PCL gene, and then we replace the three prime UTR sequences from that gene for the uh, sequences for the EBF2. These are, again, the sequences that are required for repressing the translation in response to ethylene. So now we put this back into the mutant plant of the PCL2. Oh, PCL, sorry. So in here you have, this is again, looking, this is actually Javier's uh, data, very still preliminary, but looks good. So uh, this will be the, the softening of the wild type. So these are the different uh, ripening stages. So you can see that uh, they soft quite quickly and then they really just very, very soft. So this will be, this line here will be the one for the mutant. And then this will be the one that uh, is expressing the PCL with the three prime of the EBF2. So you can see that it's softened, but not as fast. Something in between the, the mutant and the wild type. And then we have, we have one more control here that is just complementing the mutation. So basically we put the, the gene with the three prime of the gene, so basically that initial construct. And we can see that the, 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 these plants behave the same as the wild type, even the background is the mutant, so we complement it. So I think I will stop here. I'd be happy to take any questions just to finish the Acknowledgement, so this last part actually is from Javier. Uh, he and Anna have a USDA grant that we just finished to work on this tomato ripening project. And then, as I said, we have other projects. Uh, Serena and John are not in the lab anymore, but they actually work with the recombinating and with the uh, translation. And then, uh, uh, Hao and Ching Son are working with the, uh, with the translation, and these are some of our collaborators and some of the funding uh, that allowed us to work on these projects. And thank you. regulatory consequences of using recombinating versus using CRISPR to do gene editing? So I think, I mean, it will be a transgenic, right? Because what we are doing is classic, classical transgenic uh, events. So, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, we are putting a piece of DNA that we have taken from, maybe from the same plant, maybe from some other plant, and then manipulating and putting it back. So I am not an expert on this, but I assume that there should be no difference than with any classical transformation. Is that the case even if you're doing a deletion? Where you're, with the, but I mean, we always had in about the final product, whether the final product has any sort of, you know, quote unquote foreign DNA left over. If we use the classical like agrobacterium transformation, you will still have like the markers for the transformation. So, and it would, yeah, so uh, it's, I mean, those steps are common to any, transform, any classical uh, transgenic approach. So if you can do some transgenic approach that, is, uh, that can bypass some of the regulatory, uh, then you probably can use that with recombinating as well. But otherwise, it's, it's, that part, I think, is exactly the same that any transgenic approach. Thanks. Yeah. 
Well, for USDA regulation, what's going to matter right now, because the, the draft rules are still in draft form and not final, is that whether you have plant pest DNA left in the final product, that'll be probably the main metric of whether you'll be regulated. And so it looks like you've got some agrobacterium sequences left in the final right. product, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so that here, would be the main I mean, the vectors that we are using is all agrobacterium-based transformation. So it doesn't matter. Foreign DNA doesn't necessarily matter right now. It's more about the plant pest DNA. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you were going to do this, I don't know what the efficiency will be. Like, if you were like bombardment or something in which you will not need to put any agrobacterium required DNA, but uh, probably the selection of that will be complicated. So, I, I don't know. But if they change the rules, then it might be different. Yeah, that Um, aside from the uh, tomato ripening um, projects, what, what, what other biotechnological applications is your uh, lab working on? If, if so as I said, we are not so good at, at translating that step. So this is actually our, I think, the first attempt to do some uh, translation working on a, in a plant. So all our work has been with Arabidopsis. So Anna will tell you about some of the tools that she's developing in Arabidopsis, but they can be used then to other crops or, or uh, biotechnology. I mean, these are just tools. This is, right. would be something. Yeah, I'm just curious, are there other biotechnological applications that you'd like to pursue in your lab alongside the, like if you had it, like do you have a wish list? Right, I mean, so using the recombinating, you mean? Yeah. So, I mean, our next big thing will be to identify more of these elements. Now we, we are limited to uh, regulate or down-regulate translation in response to one hormone that is ethylene. So that kind of uh, puts you in a, in a very narrow uh, application, right? So, I mean, still, I think there are many that you could pursue, but other than ripening, anything that ethylene has a role, and then you want to use that as a suppression. But the idea would be to identify more of these elements that are in response to uh, no ethylene, but maybe to development or, uh, or pathogens. So uh, people have done is uh, identifying, in this case, sequences in the five prime UTRs that are responsive to pathogens. So one advantage of regulating at the translational level that I didn't mention is that what we see is that the RNA actually has been made, but it's not been translated. So actually, Xing uh, Yan Don in Duke, at Duke, what they actually found is uh, elements, similar elements than this, similar strategy than this, but they identify elements in the five prime UTR that are responsive to pathogens. So their idea is that you can actually make, put these elements into uh, resistant genes resistance to, to, to a pathogen. Then usually those, the expression of those genes have detrimental effects in the plant. So you stop growth, you prepare yourself for defense, right? So, but you don't want to express them all the time. So, but you can express the RNA and prevent the translation. Now, when the pathogen actually comes, you have lots of this RNA that can be quickly translated. And then you have a much, much faster uh, deployment of your anti-pathogen uh, protein. So that is another uh, biotechnology that we are not using, but uh, our neighbors are doing. So uh, again, yeah, I think the limitation now is identifying more of these elements that these elements that can uh, allow us to, to, to manipulate other processes. CRISPR to do sort of these similar changes or not um, is sort of one question, but then what I'm really more interested in is actually the database you guys are um, either contributing to or like if you started, you could talk about that database that has all of these um, components that you guys have right. developed, which looks sort of like a, a standardized set of tools that people, right. I think I heard you say, are freely accessible. Yeah. So yeah. if you could talk about that. Yeah, so I'm curious if that gets you around having patents on CRISPR. Yeah, so uh, again, we have been working. This is all tools that uh, can be used in plants. So I don't. Again, they are the vectors and all these things. Some of the tools can be used in any system, but uh, they have been designed for plants. So they they may have to be tweaked in some way. So uh, all the all the cassettes that we have developed, they are all in the Arabidopsis Stock Center. So that is something that you can search. It's a, it's a, a 
supported by uh, NSF. So you can uh, order, and then you have to pay, I think it's like $7 or $14 for the shipping, and that's, that's all. There's no, anything that is in there, there's no MTAs. So then the recombinating strain is not ours. That was developed by, by, by uh, the NCI. So, but then they are very happy to people to use it. So you need to sign like some very uh, mild MTA. And then, and then, so in the, in the other part that you require is the, the DNA, the target DNA. That's gonna be pla uh, plant specific. So what we have done is we actually collected a library that was, uh, that a company had, had and then uh, we, we uh, we replicated, we asked for permission for the company because the company was not in business anymore. So basically, uh, we were able to make it freely available and no MTAs again. So anybody can use them. And the tools that, the bioinformatic tools allow you to search those, uh, those tools that, are, that we have deposited in the stock center. And I forgot what there was, the first well, question. I mean, oh, the CRISPR. Well, yeah, so it, well, I'm interested in sort of the success of uh -huh. So, are, are you seeing other groups sort of using similar methods? So we just of the accessibility of your cassettes and others as that database grows versus going the, the CRISPR well, avenue. Right. So, um, so we just published this paper like uh, the beginning of the year, so like a month, two months ago. So I hope uh, I have I've been contacted by people saying that oh we want to use it. Uh, we have collaborated in the past. So we have maybe, I don't know, like 20 collaborations or 30 collaborations that we have done it for other people. Uh, when it was the old system, it was, that's what we, uh, it took a lot of time and uh, people didn't want to establish all the protocols that were required. Now it's just basically, you can work with E. coli, you can do it. So uh, I don't know how many people are gonna adopt it. It's, it's always uh, difficult to change. You have a protocol established, why do I wanna change it? It works okay. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, and, and then related with the CRISPR, so in Arabidopsis and other, in rice and other species, it's possible to do this uh, precise editing. In which you can add GFP or you can make a point mutation that you want, not like some random mutation. So, but those are still like sporadic and then they take a lot of time. So uh, it's not something that you'd routinely do. Uh, they have the advantage, they, they, are, they, they, are much, they are better than this, right? So these are in the gene of the genome. Now we are making this in the last piece of DNA, but we add this back to the genome. So uh, it's not a substitute, but it probably gives you, in many cases, the same type of information, uh, but it's much, much easier. So I think the advantage is it's not as good as CRISPR, but you can do it. Right. So what we usually do is we get the knockouts, and then because making a knockout is relatively simple, and then we put the copy, extra copy. So basically, we have just the extra copy. And the, 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 you can CRISPR your gene of interest, and then you can now put your copy. That it will be the only copy. I mean, it's it's extra work. Yeah. But yeah. If, if you really want to do it. You can do it. Like the, for the tomato case, we got a knockout, and that is the knockout we are adding the extra copy. So we basically just have our copy. So this tool is really designed for species where CRISPR is inefficient. Well, I mean, you, if you work with, you're working with GIST, uh, we'll not use GIST, right? Because GIST, you can, I mean, not CRISPR, but just homologous recombination is so easy. So now, if you have, uh, like in even Arabidopsis, you can do CRISPR very easily to do knockouts, but mm -hmm. making these precise changes, still delivering the DNA, this is something, uh, this because it's recorded, I cannot talk about this, but we, we, we're working on some project, try to, to do something about that. <laughs> so I was just you know, fascinated by the, the size of the number of genes that can be moved, because you know, people are now talking right about changing whole pathways, right? And I guess, you know, obviously in E. coli, you're not gonna get, exp I don't think you're gonna get expression, but people are moving to yeast systems, right? 
So I, I just was wondering, is this kind of technology for having very large groupings of DNA, you know, when you want to have a pathway, is that something that people are exploring where maybe you could put it in yeast or something like that in that same way, but actually look at the kinds of expression and what happens to the pathway and then have that ability to manipulate and have a, a thousand different combinations that you then put back in your plants to see if they work better, or is that not... I may be yeah. naive about this. Um, I mean, like, you could do... So, I mean, like, the regulatory sequences in yeast, plant regulatory sequences in yeast are not going to work, but, but you could express genes to just make a product or something, and then with just regulatory sequences, and then just optimize it, just make a construct, then you will need to replace that with the plant sequences. So, I mean, it will be, it will be a lot of work. Uh, I think what you can do, I mean, is still, you can make it in E. coli, and then put it in the plant, test it, or in, and then go back and, and remake it, and then uh, going back and forth to optimize it, but I think you always have to have the plant uh, read out. Um, when you uh, insert like a, a big piece of, of DNA off of a, a back or something where you know the genes are in the same order as the genome they're going into, is it possible that all that homology going in with the tDNA does influence the insertion site? So we hoped that that would be the case, but we don't have evidence for that. No, no I don't think so. Because we, we hope, like, you have now, like, 50 kBs in each side, so maybe that will help to do actually a replacement of your endogenous sequence, right? So target it to whatever the, that sequence originally was. And we, we tried to test it and we didn't, we didn't see any improvement. And the efficiency of homologous recombination is so low so we saw zero, right? So, but that's expected if you don't. I mean, it could be that it went from one in 100,000 to one in 50,000, but it still is not feasible. Yes, question. You know, when you're putting all this stuff up on databases, do you have any sense of whether any industry people get interested in using this, or is it mostly academics? I, I would think it's academics. I'm yeah. not sure. Uh, I mean, they are accessible for anybody. So anybody can order them. There is no MTA. There's no trace of who bar. I mean, the stock center probably know. Uh, we could ask them, and they probably they have. So, but uh, I actually don't know. I, 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 I know how many people order the stocks that we put, but I don't know. This would be too basic for industry to be interested. Yeah, I mean, I, I give this, like, I show this technology to industry, and because it's transgenics, so they are not very excited about yeah. it. Yeah. So expensive to do anything. So. Thank you very much.